I specialize in the uncanny, strange events, unlikely sightings, stories. There are occurrences in this world, Maud, that you most people do are this. unprepared to accept. Whatever he said, whatever he promised you, some of those occurrences are fairy tales. Others, what makes well, you think they're as real as you his promise me. to you? No one will ever believe you a word you say. They'll call you well, a lunatic, a broken a mass man murderer. is a hard thing to fix. Say, Maud, how would well you like busted. to go to Europe? There's only one way out of this. The Mysterious Tongue of Dr. Vermilion and Other Stories The First Elizabeth Crown Saga Now available on audiobook Begin the adventure today on Audible and iTunes. The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Carnival of Fire Episode 5 When our train reached the Mexican border, everything drew to a halt. It was a blistering afternoon, and it hurt my eyes to gaze upon the yellow landscape. I hid in the shadows of the boxcar, not wanting to expose myself to the sun. But I heard noises outside, loud discussion, then the shouting of commands. Heavy boots clunked on the ground. I could hear the tinkle of equipment and the yelling of gruff Spanish. When faces appeared in the open door, I recognized the uniformed men as Mexican soldiers, rifles slung over their shoulders. They said nothing, only scanned the interior and then moved on. I had never crossed an international border, and I assumed this kind of search was customary. But the other men looked worried. They mumbled that nothing like this had ever happened before, at least not with such manpower. They shifted on their feet and stared distantly, like bucks motionless in the presence of hunters. A panic rose within me. It was not the soldiers themselves that alarmed me, but the mere threat of authority. I slipped out of the boxcar and walked stiffly down the line. Many of the carnies had emerged from their cabins, and they were gossiping quietly in the burning sunlight. We had crossed the Juarez Bridge and reached the other side of the Rio Grande. We were in Mexico, and adobe shacks crowded around. Clouds of dust and bits of tumbleweed rolled across the scene. Curious Mexican boys emerged from the slums and wove through the bunches of people, holding out their tiny hands and begging for dinero. I navigated the webs of soldiers, keeping my head low, until I arrived at Georgiana's car. I ascended the steps and pounded on her door. When Georgiana appeared, her hair was pinned up and her face was scrubbed of makeup. She looked puffy with fatigue and her eyes squinted at me confusedly. Are we in Mexico? she asked. She had just woken, I could tell. 
I pushed her aside and closed the door behind me. We have to scram, I said. We ought to leave this place. What are you talking about? She protested. What is wrong with you? There's something going on. Some kind of search. There are soldiers everywhere. She snickered at me, amused by my ignorance. It is the border. There are always soldiers here. But it's something else. I can tell. They're looking for something. Caro, Georgiana said, soothingly. Do you not read the papers? It is the politics of Mexico. Have you not heard? The Paisani want the revolution. They want to fight the government. But it is nothing. Only banditos in the mountains. But what if they search the train? I said frantically. What will they find? A few horses and penguins. Some clowns and acrobats. What is that? It is nothing. We are a circus only. Why should we worry about anything? Because... My heart felt that it would burst from my chest. I could barely breathe, and the ceiling seemed to press down upon me. Because... Georgiana... I've sinned. I'm a sinner, do you hear me? A sinner? What is this nonsense? She retreated to her mattress and drew a Chinese fan, which she unfolded in order to breeze herself. I, the words stuck in my throat, I committed a crime. Georgiana looked at me gravely. What crime? She asked quietly. I was in Louisiana, I said. I was angry. I was tired. I'd had too much to drink. You can understand that, can't you? All that time on the road, playing tricks with cards, amusing children, and only pennies to show for it. I felt the world owed me something. I don't know why. It just seemed unfair. I shook my head, feeling woozy and confused. I don't know how it happened. I got to talking with a pair of brothers, Wilbur and Raymond, just a couple of drunks like me. A pair of drifters, nothing more. We traded stories, just a regular conversation like you'd have anywhere, until they said, how would you like to make some money? What was their plan? Georgiana murmured. All I had to do, I said, was carry a bag into a bank. Just a plain carpet bag. It had to be the end of the workday, just before closing. I had to pretend I had some business there, a deposit or some such. Then I had to leave the bag. That was the trick, leaving the bag behind without anybody noticing. And not just anywhere, but leaving it on the floor, right in front of the vault. The vault, Georgiana exclaimed. But why? Because I closed my eyes and wiped away sweat with my shirt cuff. The bag was filled with dynamite. It had a clock inside. And when that clock struck quarter past five, it was rigged to explode. See, Wilbur and Raymond were tinkers. They were good with machines, but they were also clumsy. They didn't know how to smuggle a bag into a bank without looking suspicious. But I could do it because, well, I'm a magician. 
Did it work? Georgiana asked. She was breathless now. It did work. The bomb went off, right on cue. Blasted that vault wide open. It even blew open the bank's front doors. Loudest bang you ever heard. Smoke everywhere. We covered our faces with bandanas and mining goggles, just like they'd planned it. We ran inside, coughing and hacking. We stuffed the money into pillowcases, and then we skedaddled. They ran in one direction, and I ran in the other. Did you hurt anyone? Georgiana asked. I don't know, I said. I honestly don't know. I was so nervous. And there was so much smoke and dust, I didn't even think to look. And the newspapers, well, I couldn't bear to read them. I thought maybe if I don't see the headlines, it'll be like it never happened. Georgiana folded her fan slowly and placed it on the vanity. Did you find them again, the brothers? No, I said. They made me promise to run away and never speak of it again. I should never try to find them, and they would do the same. They gave me a pistol with a single bullet. They made me swear if I ever thought I'd be captured, I should use that gun. To fight the police, Georgiana exclaimed, with only one bullet. Not for the police, I corrected. I was supposed to use that bullet on myself. That is rubbish, Georgiana cried. What do you owe them? It was their plan, and it was your skill, and now you are even. You think they would sacrifice themselves for you? No, a thousand times no. They would squeal to the police like any petty criminal. This promise means nothing. You may wash your hands of these scoundrels. Even so, I said, shaking my head. I've sinned. I committed a crime, don't you see? How am I any different from these... These monsters. You mean the carnies? Georgiana scoffed. They are nothing but children. Pay them no mind. You think you have sinned. What man has not? What woman has not? It is not the sin that matters, but what you do with it. Now tell me, where is the money? My head spun. The confession had granted me such repose. I felt cleansed relieved of a terrible burden. Yet now I wondered, why was she asking me? I wanted to trust her, to tell her everything, but I couldn't take any chances, not now, when I had come so far. I buried it, I said, back in Louisiana. I wanted the coppers to cool down, but I know exactly where it is. If I go back, I can dig it up again. I'd be rich. I stared at her with the sincerest passion I'd ever felt. We could be rich. She exhaled long and slow, and then she said, We cannot leave now. Not yet. It is too dangerous here. We would make them suspicious. We play one more show, and then we tell them we are leaving together. We make up a story. We say we are going to Mexico City to start a new life. But instead, we go to Louisiana. No one is the wiser. You agree? Yes, I cried. Absolutely, yes. But you must promise me 
she said, her eyes growing misty. If I go with you, you will not leave me. In this world, there is nothing for a woman alone. The Americans, they hate my people. If you leave me, I will die in the street like a stray dog. And you know it is true. You can go anywhere, do anything. But if I leave the circus, I have no second chance, no other way. You promise me. I fell to my knees. I crawled to her and grasped her hands in mine. I kissed her knuckles with feverish lips. I will never leave you, Georgiana, I declared. No matter what happens, I will always have you by my side. Georgiana closed her eyes, and I realized then that she had never expected to hear such words, not from any man, in any language, or in any country. The litany of men's lies and betrayals had hardened her. She had expended the last of her faith on me, and I knew, come what may, I would do anything to preserve it. Two days passed, and we arrived in a small pueblo, somewhere in the stark hills of Mexico. When I saw Eugene, he was sitting on a wooden post. The fence outlined a scruffy meadow, and the barbed wire was rusty and tangled. The cattle had all gathered in the shade of a single primeval tree, which stood alone in the brown grass. I might not have even wandered over to him, but Eugene held a pair of metal rings, and he intermittently pulled at them, trying to break them apart. I was familiar with the trick, and I promised myself that, sometime soon, I would teach him the correct technique. Afternoon, Eugene, I said. How, uh, how do you do? Eugene let the rings rest in his lap. To be honest, he said, I'm having a fabulous day. I felt bile rise in my throat. His smile was more strained than ever, as rigid as a statue's. His eyes looked like black holes hollowed into his skull. Yet his voice was as buoyant as ever. He sounded healthy and happy like any adolescent. My heart ached miserably, for I wanted to say a hundred things, to give him all my consolation, but no words came. Can I show you something? Eugene asked. Why, of course, I exclaimed, relieved by his interjection. He looked toward the ground. It's... A very personal thing, he said. I've never shown it to anyone before. Are you sure it's all right? Absolutely, I said. Lead the way. He beamed with a perplexing glee, then hopped down from the post and started to march toward the train. A few minutes later, we had arrived at a boxcar whose walls were so decayed that I wondered why the circus had retained it. At first, the sliding door looked sealed, but Eugene stepped confidently to its side 
where the door yielded a narrow crack. He heaved himself into the opening and was swallowed in its darkness. I followed suit, and by the time I shimmered inside, Eugene had lit an oil lamp. The boxcar was stacked high with crates, which looked moldy and misshapen with age. No one ever uses this car, said Eugene. I think they've forgotten about it. That's why I like to come here. It's a kind of... He searched for the proper word. I suppose it's my sanctuary. I was about to speak. I wanted to comfort Eugene, to encourage him, to make him feel less alone. I wanted to express my sympathy, to explain that no child should endure the suffering he had, that these people were madmen and monsters, and if he wanted to travel the world, that's just what he should do. I could have talked for hours, trying to reconcile his despicable past with the bright future that awaited him. I even opened my mouth, ready to say my piece. And then I saw it. The light of Eugene's lamp climbed the rear wall of the boxcar. There, spread across that weathered lumber, was a face. I am not a church-going man, but I believe I saw the devil that day. The face was a kind of sculpture, perhaps eight feet tall and six feet wide, with a pointed nose and a crescent-shaped grin. The eyes were narrow and wicked, and horns jutted from its temples. The face itself took my breath away, and I nearly choked with disbelief. But it was the structure of the face that flooded me with foreboding. The sculpture was composed of paper scraps, ticket stubs, bottle caps, lunch bags, popcorn boxes, handkerchiefs, dollies, tinfoil, bits of fabric, newspaper clippings, old maps, and every other kind of carnival debris, patiently collected over the course of years and paper mache to that monstrous visage. Everything the circus goers threw away, Eugene had collected and pasted to this wall. What do you think, he said, holding the lamp high. Isn't it beautiful? As the light intensified, I spotted the most grotesque feature of all. Above its smiling lips, the face bore a bushy Fu Manchu, woven together from human hair. My God, I bellowed. Eugene, what is this thing? It's my mask, he said simply. Isn't it beautiful? Your mask? That's right, he said, defensive. I've always loved masks. Have you ever seen the Venetian masks, the ones they wear for Carnivale? Come to think of it, you spent some time in New Orleans, I'm sure. Did you ever see the Mardi Gras masks? So magnificent, so... He shook his head. I wanted someone to see it before it's too late. Eugene, I said, heaving for breath. 
You have to get away from here. Eugene just studied his vile creation, but he furrowed his brow, seeming to weigh my words. What do you mean? These people, they've hurt you, I know. You have to get away from them. I, I can give you money, a loan, no, a, a gift. But go to China, see the world, whatever you're thinking of doing, you have so much to live for. He laughed, a boyish chortle, an expression of pure amusement. It pierced me to my marrow. I felt breathless and amorphous, just as I did in my bleakest nightmares. I love reading the newspaper, don't you? Eugene declared. The newspaper? What are you talking about? I remember said Eugene. I picked up a paper in St. Didier, Louisiana. A dull little town. Not much there, really. But it's only a few miles from La Framboise, a slightly larger town. Have you ever been to La Framboise? I froze. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I shook my head slowly from side to side. Never been there? asked Eugene, his head fallen sideways in mock curiosity. Well, La Framboise is a quaint little place. A couple of stores, a firehouse, a post office, the usual institutions. And there is, of course, a bank. And wouldn't you know, someone robbed that bank. They blew up the safe with dynamite. Dynamite, can you believe it? I could only stutter. I, I, I don't. So the bank gets robbed, Eugene continued, setting the lamp on the ground. When he straightened again, his face was lost in shadow. And two days later, you appear, asking for a job. I felt myself backing away, but I only took two steps before stopping because I couldn't see the exit and the boxcar was like a cavern of blackness. Now, just imagine you are a bank robber, Eugene said. You would need a getaway, right? And what better escape than a traveling circus? Why not? Blend in among the freaks, show off some tricks, and after a few months, take off on your own. The money isn't good, of course, just some nickels here and there, but what does it matter? You have a suitcase full of money. Then he paused, and I could just make out his grimace in the dark. That is, you had a suitcase full of money. Now, all you have is a suitcase. Don't you dare, I yelled. Don't you dare tell me you touched that suitcase. Oh no, Eugene spat. And why not? Because you bought me a milkshake? My jaw hung agape. With one sentence, he erased every thought in my head. My body did not feel like my own. I was powerless before him. Looky here, folks, Eugene cried out. John Luke Thibodeau, the patron saint of orphan boys. Feeling blue? 
he'll take you to the malt shop. But when you're trapped in a rabbit cage and a tiger is threatening to maul you, he just stands there, exactly like all the others. That's not true, I blurted. I wanted to stop them. You wanted to stop them. He mocked me with his coal black eyes. His smile no longer looked forced, but a permanent fixture of his devilish countenance, just like you wanted to keep the money you stole. You give me back my money, I seethed. You give it back now, you hear? You mean my money, he sneered. You filthy little thief, I cried. You goddamned bastard! I lunged forward. My arm swung through the air of its own volition. It smacked him hard across the cheek. His head was knocked sideways. When I felt the tingling on the back of my hand, I recoiled. It took only a second to realize what I'd done. I had said their words. I had aped their violence. Everything they did, I had now done. I was just as culpable, just as thoughtless and cruel. I had struck the boy. At long last, the magician had tricked even himself. Again, Eugene laughed. It burbled into a cackle of delight. The laughter zenithed and receded, and finally he murmured, I almost believed. Then he shook the thought away and stiffened his shoulders. Well, I think you've learned your lesson. Please, I begged. That money, I need it. I know, said Eugene. So let's strike a deal. I'll just take a little. I don't need much. Just enough to get my travels underway. What do you say? All right then, I said, my voice sagging with resignation. What about the rest? I'll give it back, he said amiably. Meet me at the cattle car in an hour. The cattle car, I said, where they keep the show horses. Meet me in front. Eugene blew out his lamp and everything was lost in darkness. The mask disappeared from view and only a single blade of light extended from the door's narrow opening. He slipped through it easily, and a moment later, Eugene was gone. You've been listening to The Carnival of Fire, Episode 5, written and performed by Robert Eisenberg. All music and sound effects, courtesy of and licensed by audioblocks.com. For more information about the exciting field of uncanology, visit elizabethcrown.net. <laughs>